If you would please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. Last Sunday we began our study in the book of Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. And some people think that that's actually not the person's name. It might have been Ezra and he used a pseudonym, but I think there was a man named Malachi. The theme of this book is God's unchanging love. That is, God still loves his people in spite of all appearances to the contrary. If you look at verse number two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Malachi's audience was skeptical. Times were hard and the people had become hardened. And so to have a message that God loved them, uh, they found it difficult to accept. Their expectations of the time after the exile were very different than their actual situations because the prophets had spoken of a time in which the land would just rebound with tremendous fruitfulness. The population would swell to a mighty number. The nation would return to its former glory and be under a new king in the line of David, who would be like King David. All nations would serve them. But look at their situation now, the time of Nehemiah. The land was experiencing frequent famines. The population was a fraction. It remained a fraction of what it had been. And they were still under the rule of a foreign power, under the Persians. So when Malachi tells the people that God still loves them, they are skeptical. We looked at this last week, but what is God's love like? What is it about? How are we to understand it? And I mentioned there are three characteristics of God's love. First of all, God's love is sovereign and independent. God is creator and ruler of all. That is, there is no necessity. There is, he is not required to love. Okay? No one can say, no one is higher to, than God who can say, you must love these people or you must love. God is love because that is his nature. Because God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is love eternally between the three. And something that goes beyond our understanding. We know that God the Father loved the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father. And this has been going on throughout eternity. When God loves his people, it is because he chooses to do so. The second characteristic is that his love is unconditional. Israel is reminded of this time and time again. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Over and over again, we are reminded that God loves and the motivating reason for his love is on his side. It's not anything to do with us. God did not love Israel because they were more numerous, because they were some great nation, and God said, yeah, I think I'll love them. I want to be on their side. We read, again, in the, throughout the Old Testament, for his own sake, for his name's sake, God does what he does. And we should not say that God says... For example, of Israel, they were the fewest of all the people uh, of all nations that God said, well, yeah, but I know one day there'll be a great nation, so I'm going to love them because I know of the possibilities that they have. God loves where there is nothing to love, and God loves when there is nothing worthy of love. 
God's love is unconditional. And then thirdly, we saw that God's love is intimately personal. The well-known passage uh, from Hosea 11, which is found in Matthew 2. We will read it as we come to the Christmas season. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. By the way, this ties in with Exodus chapter 4. Then say to Pharaoh, God's telling Moses, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. The tenth plague. This is not some random thing. God says Israel is like a firstborn son to me. My firstborn son. I love him. And because you will not let him go, I will take your firstborn son from you. Moses points to the fact that God, the transcendent God, loves them. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you their descendants above all nations as it is today. In Malachi, proof of God's love is seen by the contrast between what's happening to the Jews and what's happening to the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And as we saw last week, God loves Israel. He hates Edom. I don't think, and I mentioned this last week, I don't think Israel has a problem with God hating Edom, the the descendants of Esau. They're okay with that. Their problem is they don't think God loves them because if he loved them, they think he would treat them better. And yet, as we will see today, it's ironic. They question God's love for them. They do not question their love for God. That doesn't even seem to come up on the radar. It's all about, what are you doing for me? You know, you're supposed to love me, what's up with that? There's nothing about, well, I love you and therefore I should respond in a particular way. So in verse number six, as the book begins to unfold, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. They doubted his love, they questioned his love, and yet they were marked by carelessness, indifference, and half-heartedness in their worship of God. If they were so convinced that they were the chosen people of God, and yet they doubted that God was keeping his end of the bargain, why were they not living up to their side of the bargain? If, in fact, you think I'm the chosen people of God and God expects certain things of me and it it seems that maybe God is not doing his part, well, maybe I need to do my part better than I am. No honor is shown. No respect is given. One more thing before we move on, and I mentioned this last week at the end of the sermon. We need to remember that the words in this book, as in much of Scripture, were given to a specific people in a specific situation at a specific time in a specific culture. And we, all these centuries later, are reading it, and we are, in fact, a specific people in a specific situation, in a specific time, in a specific culture. And this means that we need to be careful as we seek to make application. This is what God said to them, and we're sort of on the sidelines listening and reading. What is the application to us? We're obviously not Jewish. We're not living uh, before the time of Christ 
here we are in 2017, what is the application to us? And by God's grace, I hope we will see the application, but we need to be very careful. And uh, we'll come to this later in the book of Malachi. I'll just mention it here in passing. But many of the sermons I've heard preached growing up on tithing come from the book of Malachi. Um, and I think they're taken out of context. They don't recognize that it's a specific situation. Um, and you know, for a pastor to say, listen, you guys need to give your tithe because of what Malachi said, I have real problems with that. Anyway, we'll come to that later on. So, today we will look at the failure of the priesthood. And that will continue, by the way, in chapter 2. But let's begin reading um, in verse number 6. I already read the first part, but let's do it again. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun, and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them at your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. By the way, we find a pattern throughout the book of Malachi in which God speaks and he anticipates a question that the, that the Israelites will ask him in response and then he will give them an answer. One might easily think that this passage is not primarily about the priest, but about the people who present their sacrifices. Um, and especially if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, um, and now this admonition is for you, O priest. So it seems like first we deal with the people, then we deal with the priest. But in fact, I think in this portion he's dealing with both those who give the sacrifices, but more importantly with those who accept the sacrifices. It is you, uh, we are told in verse number 6, O priest, who show contempt for my name. To appreciate what's happening here, we need to think about the priesthood in the Old Testament. What was the function of the priesthood? Well, first of all, they were to represent the people of God before God. They were mediators between the people and God. Now in the New Testament, after the coming of Jesus, he is the mediator between God and man. But in the Old Testament, they represent that. 
That is, the people come to the priest and the priests offer their sacrifices to God. People don't offer directly to God, they go through the priest. And so they have the purpose of being a mediator. Hebrews 5.1 Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So they're mediators. Secondly, they are teachers. They are to teach the people of Israel the law of God. Uh, In Leviticus 10, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And we saw this when we were going through Nehemiah, that great day in which Ezra, who is a priest, by the way, a descendant of Aaron, reads from the book of the law, and we read, the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. He reads, and then we don't know exactly how it worked, but there were Levites who were out there explaining. And it may be because it is written in Hebrew, and their Hebrew is not that good, but also to give details, to give commentary. This is what is meant. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. They also had the function to serve as judges. So they are mediators, they are teachers, they are judges. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 19. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's the judicial system. If you only have one witness, that is not sufficient. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judges who were in the office at that time. In other words, it's sort of a he said, he said. Well, when that happens, it is the priest who are to judge who's telling the truth. So you have the people, these priests, they are to uphold the standards in Israel. They should know better. They should know that when you bring your sacrifices, there are certain things that are required. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? They should know better. They should know far better than this. And as I said, there's a going back and forth. God says something, he anticipates their question, and then he gives an answer. You show contempt for my name, he says. How have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. Then how have we defiled you? And it goes on. To understand what's going on, we need to revisit the Old Testament law and the Mosaic law. They're very specific about the sacrifices that you could give to God. And by the way, let's catch our breath here and just stop and think a minute. We use the word sacrifice, and I think in our minds it's sort of a cold, economic, bloodless encounter. When you gave us an animal to God, it was killed. Okay? It had to be killed and then cut up and part of it burned on the altar. This is the system that God set up. So in Leviticus chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book of Leviticus, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to, of the, to the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons 
shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either sheep or goats, he is to offer a male without defect. Now, two things I think are clear here, and they stand out. First of all, the sacrifice has to be without defect. I mean, that's said over and over again. But secondly, it is the priest who determines if, in fact, the animal is acceptable. So you just don't sort of waltz into the tabernacle and say, here's my sacrifice. It is the priest who must examine the animal to determine whether or not the sacrifice is acceptable to God. Um, What does it mean to have no defect? Well, in Leviticus 22, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, If any of you either an Israelite or an alien living in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or free will offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf, accepted by the priest. Okay? Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or freewill offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. So here the defects are specified. If it's a blind animal, if it's an injured animal, if it's crippled, if it's maimed, if it has warts or some type of festering sore, it is not to be accepted. And who decides? It's the priests. The priests are the ones who decide if it is to be accepted. So to go back to Malachi, if in fact there is defiled sacrifice on the altar, if blind animals, crippled animals are offered, who is at fault? Well, you could say the people who offered it, and obviously there is that, but it is also the priest, the priest who accepts them. The priest should know better. They are the ones to teach Israel what they are to bring. If someone brings an animal that is blind or crippled, and the priest examines it and says, this is not acceptable, that's not a condemnation of the person. That is rather saying God has a very specific way that we are to worship him and this is not acceptable. It is a judgment, and we've seen the difference, it's not a condemnation. It's not saying you're a terrible person, it's saying this this sacrifice is not acceptable. But, if somebody brings a blind animal or a crippled animal and the priest takes it, how will God's people ever learn what animals are appropriate for sacrifice? And, and by the way, uh, Malachi says, try doing this with the governor. Try saying, oh, governor, here's, here's a gift for you. And you bring a blind animal or a crippled animal. What do you think he's going to say? Will he accept you? Will he be pleased with you? And the answer obviously is no.
There's something else we need, to, we need not overlook. God says you show contempt for my name. How have we shown contempt for your name? You've placed defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Uh, or the ESV has by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. We may miss this, but it's really important. To offer a defiled offering, or a polluted offering, as the ESV has it, is to show contempt for God's name. To say that the Lord's table is contemptible is to defile the Lord, to pollute him. This is very personal. It isn't just, oh, you've done it the wrong way. You've given a defective animal and this is not good. No. This is actually something you have done against God. You're polluting, you're defiling God, you're showing contempt for him. If we affirm that God's love for us is intimate and personal, what should our response to God's love be? Should it be cold and impersonal? By the way, I looked up, um, the, the opposite of intimate is cold. We want God to love us personally, but then we can treat him with contempt? I don't think so. And then we come to verse number 9. And here, I think, is the height of irony. Now implore God to be gracious to us. As I said, I think there's real irony here. They despise the Lord. They show contempt for the Lord. But they want him to be gracious to them. They want him to bless them. They seem to see it as a one-way street. We want God to love us. We want God to bless us. Yeah, but we can just be careless, thoughtless, unloving and cold in our response to him. They think they can treat God as they wish, but they want him to treat them graciously. So the question is then asked in verse number 9, with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now here we come to an issue... And that is, I said earlier that God's love is unconditional. If God's love is unconditional, then even if I give him a crippled animal, a blind animal, then shouldn't he still love me? I mean, I thought his love was unconditional. And his love is unconditional. But because it is love, he's not going to let you do what you want. If you love your child, you don't let your child do whatever he or she wants to do, right? You correct them. It's because you love the child that you correct the child. Now, there's a time, I think, for patience in which correction isn't immediate. Um, For example, a child in a grocery store who doesn't want to hold mommy's hand or stay with mommy or daddy and runs away. And you're like, even though in today's world that's kind of a scary thought, but you keep an eye on them, but you let them sort of go on their own and then they realize, oh my goodness, I'm by myself and they come running back. There is a time for patience, but then there's also a time for correction. And because God loves his people unconditionally, he is not going to accept bad behavior from them. He loves them. And again, unconditionally, it's not because they're wonderful people, but because of his great love for them, he is not going to tolerate this. So verse number 10, evidence of his great love for them. Look at verse number 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. 
Such love, such unconditional love says, shut the temple doors. I don't want anybody coming in. If you're going to come in and misbehave, if you're going to come in and give wrong sacrifices, um, I'd rather the doors were just shut rather than the temple to be a place where you can misbehave. Because if, in fact, they come in and misbehave, God's not going to, sac- he's not going to accept their sacrifice, so why give it? It's better just stay home. Don't bother coming into the temple. But someone might object. Oh no, if that happens, then there will be no one to worship God. If you close the temple gates, the doors, who will worship God? That's where verse number 11 comes in. I think verse number 11 seems kind of out of place, but it fits in perfectly. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. You see, God does not need people to worship him. And if people will not worship him correctly, there will be other people who will. The Jews said, we are the chosen people of God. And they were. But they were chosen for a task. And the task was to be a light to the Gentiles. And they did not do that. And what happens is Jesus comes into the world and he does what Israel failed to do. He was undefiled. He was a perfect sacrifice. And because of that, God is worshipped by the nations. In Hebrews chapter 13, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. I think this echoes what we hear in the book of Psalms. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. The Lord is not limited. He is not poor if people do not worship him. If defective sacrifices are rejected, you know, the, temple, the priests are like, what are we going to do? None of, this, none of the animals today were acceptable. Hey, don't worry about it. Things must be done correctly. God is not the poor if people do not worship him badly. One more time, the issue of defiling the Lord's table comes up and considering it contemptible. Look, if you would, in verse number 12. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. I think early on, it's carelessness. It's a disregard. Here, there's something else. It's boredom. They are bored with worshiping God. What a burden. Not again. We have to do this all over again. Israel is bored with the business of worshiping God. What a weariness this is, the ESV has. I think it's more than ritual or routine. I think there seems to be a conscious boredom of being before God, coming before God. So should God accept their offerings? They're bored with the whole business. Let's hurry up and get it over with. You know, pick out the worst in the flock to bring as a sacrifice. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Answer, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. 
but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. And the reason for this, for I am a great king. And by the way, this title is the title of the king of Persia, great king. And God says, I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. Again, the reader, the audience, is reminded that God does not need their sacrifices. He's not merely the God of Israel. He is the Lord God Almighty. And his name is to be feared among all the nations. I think we live in an age, if there could be one word that defines this particular time, it's boredom. And it's really quite amazing because we have more, I mean, we have the internet, we have cable TV, we have books, I mean, and yet we seem to be bored. And I think it's coming to the church where the church is bored with the business of being people of God, worshiping God. It's like every Sunday, are we going to do that again? And I, I just always reminded when I think of boredom that I want to ask people, are you bored with breathing? Oh no, another inhale? <gasps> Another exhale. Are you bored with eating or with drinking or with sleeping? The people that Malachi is writing to were bored with worshiping God, and this is unacceptable. In Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel, one I think that is often misunderstood. Let me read it to you. Now, Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. What's the primary issue here? I think for many people, it's the nature of the sacrifice. That Cain should have asked his brother, I need an animal to give. But if you read through Leviticus we're to give the first fruits. The, the Israelites were to give the first fruits, the, the product of the soil. There's nothing wrong with giving agricultural uh, offerings to God. So that's not the issue. If you think about it, if, and if you look at it, it says, but on Cain and his offering. This is not an, an economic transaction. This is very personal between God and Abel, God and Cain. And the problem with Cain is not his offering. The problem is Cain. And if you doubt that, what does Cain turn around and do? He kills his brother. In the same way, here in Malachi, I think the priests were, in fact, the quality control people. Okay? But not simply of the sacrifices. You know, it's not like they you know, stamp a kosher thing on it and say, okay, this is acceptable to God. If somebody brings a blind animal to God, the priest needs to say to that person, what's wrong with you? Are you bored with worshiping God? Do you not fear God? Do you not want to obey God? Do you not love God? What is wrong with you? The purpose of the priest is not simply to be, you know, you lift the gate and let the animal in. They were to teach the people of Israel. 
And they had failed to do so. The issue is not primarily the sacrifice. The sacrifices are the symptom of a deeper problem and that the people of God were showing contempt. They want to be blessed. They want God to bless them and give them all the things that they want. Yeah, but they don't want to have to live up to their end of the bargain. Here in Malachi 1, the Lord speaks against them giving defective animals. But the real problem is that they show contempt for his name. They say that the Lord's table is contemptible. And they're just frankly bored with it all. What a burden. They sniff at it, that is, the Lord's table, contemptuously. This is why Malachi writes what he does. The quality control is not primarily of the gift, but of the giver. It's impossible to look into a person's heart. I'm not even sure that it's possible to look into our own hearts correctly. As Paul says, you know, if my conscience is clear, that doesn't make me innocent. Um, so the priest is not there to sort of psychoanalyze the people bringing But the gift, I think, reveals much about the giver. And by giving gifts that are not acceptable, they show contempt for God. And they show that they are just bored with the whole business. The heart is to be revealed in worship. And what is revealed here is not a pretty picture. If we would be honest, sometimes we get bored with it. If we would be honest, sometimes we do not show the honor and respect due to our God. But God is gracious. He's like a patient parent. And we should be reminded that Jesus came to do what Israel did not do. He obeyed the Father. He did the Father's will. He sacrificed a sacrifice without defect. He was the perfect sacrifice. And the nations have been reached as a result. That's you and me. It is because of what Jesus did. With a perfect sacrifice, because he loved his Father, because he obeyed his Father that we have the gift of salvation. We have the gift of redemption. And for that, we should be profoundly grateful. Let's pray together. Our Father, here we are again on another Sunday. And there might be a part of our heart that says, not again, another Sunday. It's routine, it's ritual. We want you to love us unconditionally as you do, intimately as you do. We're not so sure that we want to return the favor. It is because of our sinfulness, our fallenness. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. That you are so patient with us. And I ask by your grace in an age of boredom that your spirit would revive us, that we would not be bored, but we would rejoice in what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, what you will do for us in the future. Things may not go as we expect. and It may cause us to question whether or not you love us, but you do love us. 
And in response, may we be obedient people. May we do as you've called us to do. And above all, may we be grateful. Paul reminds us in Romans 1 that the first step of turning away from you is when we stop saying thank you. When we are no longer grateful, our hearts become hard. And perhaps like the people that Malachi writes to, we are less than genuine in our worship. I thank you that you love us unconditionally, that you are patient with us. May your spirit work in our hearts. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. I ask that you would be with us as we go through the week, particularly with the time change, all the disruption in schedules. Watch over us and protect us. And again, we thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name.